0: everyone. Welcome back to the Step Outside podcast. This is Christy Keel Blackman with the Department of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries at the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture. We have another grad student with us today with some really exciting research. I'd like to introduce Ash Cable, who is working on her PhD under Dr. Emma Wilcox. Welcome, Ash. Thank you, Christy. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. we were really excited to hear about your research. So. We have talked in previous episodes about white-nose syndrome, and we will be talking about that again today. Ash, before we jump into your actual research, can you remind our listeners of what white-nose syndrome is and does?
1: Yes, most of my research does not deal with white-nose syndrome exactly, but bats that are affected by white-nose So, um, white nose is a non-native fungus that originated in Europe. It was discovered in New York in around 2006, and it was thought to be brought over by cavers, but we're not exactly positive if that's the original source. And then, ever since it has got here, it's it has been spreading. And it continues to spread out west and even south. And it's now like in Texas and Washington State. And what it does is it affects bats that hibernate. Mostly the bats that we have that that don't use caves year-round, but only use caves like in the winter. And then like in the summer, they'll migrate and use trees or other structures but in the winter, they use caves and they go into a deeper hibernation and the fungus infects their skin and causes them to wake up early before they're ready to. And then they don't have enough food to like restore their body condition. And that's one of the theories of how it's affecting individuals. It has killed up to 99% of some species. So like northern long-eared bats just aren't really around anymore tricolored bats are becoming really rare, and the Indiana bat and the little brown bat. Those are the four main ones that are affected.
0: All right, so now that we have that, that little background, just so that we'll all be on the same page, give us an overview now of the first half of your research. What are you doing with Dr. Wilcox?
1: Part of what I'm doing is trying to figure out the habitat needs of species that are affected So, the first part of my research focuses on the tricolored bat. It is a species that's currently being evaluated by the US Fish and Wildlife Service for federal listing. Their 90 day finding found that federal listing might be warranted. And so, they put out a call for information for anyone that has information on this species. And they are funding my research through a white nose syndrome grant. This project specifically is to look at what female tricolored bats need in the summer. So this is the time period that they've come out of hibernation, they've migrated to their summering areas, and they are looking for roost trees, and they are becoming pregnant and reproducing. And so it's a critical time period to figure out what they need so that they can recover from disease and put energy towards reproduction and not finding habitat. So I'm trying to figure out what they need for trees, but also what sort of areas they need for foraging.
0: And so when I looked through your papers that you sent me, I saw that you are focusing, well, you're focusing on areas that have reservoirs. So tell us about that. Why reservoirs specifically?
1: We kind of have an idea that these bats might have aquatic associated diets, and we often catch them over streams. And then Dustin Thames, he's with the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency. He's done some research with male tricolored bats in the state, and he's found that he has the most success at the tributaries to reservoirs. His male bats were actually foraging over those large bodies of water. We kind of figured after talking to him and getting data from the state of where people have caught them in the past, those would be our best areas to focus on.
0: And so you're going to be tracking these bats. How's that going to work?
1: So what I do is I go mist net on these streams or trail corridors. And a mist net is just a capture method. (laughs) And the bats are caught in the net. And we go and we we get them out of the net. And we take them back to a processing station. And we collect data on forearm, sex, age, um, mass. Reproductive condition and species. And if it's the species that we're looking for, which is the tricolored bat, put a transmitter on the back and track it. And then we track it during the day, find the roost trees, and we collect habitat data on each roost tree and a random tree. So the idea is that we can compare those used roost trees to a random tree as our sort of control. Unfortunately, that's the best we can do in bat research as a control, (laughs) is just like select a random tree. I'm so curious.
0: I have to know more about these transmitters, because how much does the average bat weigh?
1: Well, our bats here in Tennessee, so our smallest species can weigh anywhere between like three to four grams to our larger species. Maybe they get up to 25 when they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But the tricolored bat is one of our smallest species. And so they get eight grams at the most. Um, They're pretty small which is tiny. That's yeah. Honestly, if you eat McDonald's chicken nuggets, they're like that size, like <laughs> <nuggets>.
0: <laughs> that's quite a, that's quite a picture you're painting. <laughs> um, okay. If we're talking about this teeny tiny chicken nugget sized animal, what, how much does the transmitter weigh and how does the transmitter affect the everyday livelihood of the bat?
1: Yeah, the transmitter weighs 0.27 grams. It's, it's the lightest weighing transmitter on the market for any wildlife tracking. When we apply transmitters to the bats, we make sure that it is between 5 to 7% of the body weight. And that's just a general kind of rule for any sort of wildlife research. We don't want them to be negatively affected by the transmitter. And they don't seem to be. They still forage pretty long distances. The longest distance I have for tracklar bats going right now is almost 10 kilometers.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah. Is that a longer distance than average?
1: Uh, that one was kind of, it went a little bit more than the others did. The others kind of stayed around like two kilometers.
0: Okay. So that bat went a really long way.
1: <laughs> it did, yes. And that's also one of the challenges of bat research and why we don't know so much about about tricolored bats because we've only recently had technology small enough to be able to track tricolored bats Mm -hmm.
0: yeah also are you wearing a bat t-shirt right now yeah excellent our listeners (laughs) can't see this but ash is wearing a really fantastic bat t-shirt she also has a bat coffee mug so she's all in So after you attach the transmitters and you collect your data, hopefully you get all the data you need. What happens at that point?
1: At that point, I have to analyze the data and figure out if there are any patterns. When I did my roost tree analysis um, recently, I found that they are selecting roost trees that have more canopy volume than random trees. And that's really the only pattern I found at the tree level. And why do you think that
0: is? Do you have a hypothesis?
1: Yeah, I think they're more of a generalist species than some of our other bats. They're roosting in live trees and dead leaf clumps mostly, although I did find one in like a clump of poison ivy vine. (laughs) but mostly in like dead trees that are hanging off of live trees. They seem to be selecting trees based on the structure. So like the presence of dead leaf clumps hanging off of a live tree with a large canopy volume.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Okay. And so once you analyze your data, what sort of recommendations are you planning to make or how will your research affect the management of uh, these bats?
1: Yeah, so the idea is to be able to, you know, provide recommendations to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So like if this species is listed and they have to make a species recovery plan, what does habitat even look like for the species and how can we mitigate impacts? So if someone needs to cut down trees in a plot of land for whatever reason, if they're building a Walmart or a pipeline or if it's just, you know, foresters that just want to manage for endangered species to be able to provide some metrics of like what makes a good roost tree. And if a tree falls in that category, maybe don't cut it during the maternity season. So like when the bats are using the tree to have babies, that's the idea behind the roost selection study.
0: Okay. So this would tie in with generally protecting their habitat for these species that are already threatened by white-nose syndrome. Yes,
1: it is. Protecting them so that they have a space to recover from the disease and reproduce. Because these bats, they have one to two pups per year. So they have a really low reproductive output. So if the adult does not survive the summer It does not replace itself in the population. And that's part of why populations aren't doing so well. Okay. Yeah. Even though I've been doing this, this study for three years, I only have a sample size of six bats. And so we're going to be doing it again next summer and focusing on some more areas that we've caught them in the past and just maybe hopefully increase our sample size. Mm -hmm but that is also like one of the challenges of this project is these bats they're not very abundant on the landscape anymore and so it just makes my research kind of hard and right that's my only caveat is the sample size is kind of low at this point so
0: okay you are also doing another research project and you're looking at contaminant exposure tell us more about that this is really interesting
1: This project kind of stemmed off of the tricolored bat foraging project. The areas that we are focusing on for tricolored bats are around those reservoirs. And we also have heard that microplastics might be like a contamination issue, like in the Tennessee River and other parts of the world. And then another contaminant that is also still kind of an issue is mercury. It is also an issue like around these reservoir systems. So in just thinking about if the bats are foraging in those areas, are they exposed to contaminants that might affect their body condition?
0: How exactly would the microplastics and the mercury affect the body condition of bats?
1: Mercury has a lot of health impacts to wildlife. And a lot of the health impacts relate to immune system response and fat content and the ability to retain a healthy body condition. And microplastics, we don't really know exactly like how they would affect fats, but they might either like block the digestive tract or they might have effects on metabolic rate, which there has been effects documented in lobsters. <laughs> How are
0: you actually going to collect that information? What's the process there?
1: For the contaminant project, we have two sorts of parts. And the first part is when we're misnetting bats already for the triploid bat research project, we're collecting samples. Um, we're collecting fur samples and guano samples from every bat of every species that we capture. And the idea is we're going to look at diet in those bats. With the guano. So, we're going to do an eDNA analysis and figure out what sorts of insects they are eating. And then we are also going to use the guano and look to see if microplastics show up in the guano. And we are using the fur from that bat to look at mercury concentration. And we're working with Oak Ridge National Lab to do the mercury analysis too. So, that's kind of exciting too, like getting to collaborate with them. But the idea is. First, we're trying to figure out what they're eating, and then we're trying to figure out if there's a link between what they're eating and microplastic exposure or mercury exposure. And then if there is, then that gives us a good idea of whether or not they are exposed. And if they are exposed, it gives us an idea of if diet is the way that they are exposed. What I found really
0: fascinating I did not realize that microplastics can carry over from mosquito larvae to the adult.
1: Yeah, I learned about this study in my environmental toxicology class, and I was really scared. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: terrifying because it's affecting so many different food webs all over the world. And-,
1: and I don't really know if we know if this is happening in a natural environment yet, but that study, they had it in the lab where they like fed the mosquito larvae, tiny plastic particles, and they saw them when they metamorphosed to adults. um, (laughs) They retained those particles. And so we know that bats do eat mosquitoes among other aquatic insects. So Mm -hmm. if it's happening with mosquitoes, it might be happening with other aquatic insects. Right. And if so, that possibly is carrying over to bats. Yeah. When I first started thinking about microplastics, I thought that this was like an aquatic issue in the I thought of like the ocean, you know plastics in the ocean. but there are more and more studies now that are showing that terrestrial species are affected also, and it's yeah. humans also we're also exposed
0: right I've heard more and more about microplastics recently and It's really interesting. And also, like you said, really terrifying research to find out just how inundated the entire earth is now (laughs) with microplastics. Yes. (laughs) Okay, back to the bass then. So after you find out, you know, if and how these bats are affected by mercury and or microplastics, you know, at that point, what do we do about that? What's, What's the next step?
1: That's a great question. This study, you know, we're, we're trying to see if they are exposed and how. The next next step would be if they are exposed, does this have an effect? Because in toxicology, you can be exposed to things at small concentrations and maybe it doesn't affect you. The next thing would be trying to design a study that sees if they're actually affecting body condition or immune system response, things like that, that might affect their ability to survive white-nose.
0: So future grad students <laughs> that will come after you will be working on this same project, the continuation of the project.
1: Yeah, hopefully it will live on. <laughs> and then I'm not really sure what to do after that. Maybe there's some remediation that we can do or or mitigation. And I, that's just something that someone smarter than me will have to think about. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So what can the average person do to help protect bats?
1: Well, the question that people always ask me is if they should put up a bat house. And I will never say no to that question. Providing bat houses does provide a space for some species, although there are other species that won't use them like the one I'm studying.
0: Okay, so before we hop off and say goodbye to everyone, what do you hope to find from your research that can help you make recommendations
1: I hope that I'll be able to get enough of a sample size to be able to tease out some of these patterns of what the species needs. And if my information is useful for a recovery plan, I think I will be fulfilled. Yeah, sure. Awesome. That would be the ideal situation.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Ash, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. We're really excited to see how everything turns out and hopefully we can get an update from you on your findings at some point. Yes, thanks for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners. We appreciate you joining us. Please tune in next month when we will speak to another one of our grad students. Thanks.